This, this talk is entitled Life is Quite Sad, isn't it? Reflecting on this moment, we can see the interconnectedness between meeting and separation. Everyone who comes together here must separate. This is one reflection on traveling. We're always leaving a place and moving on to meet someone else. When we're invited somewhere, we fly from airport to airport. When it's time to leave, there's always this feeling of sadness, especially when we have liked being with the people. There's always a gladness in meeting people who are Buddhists or who are pleased to have us with them, or interested in what we're doing. We can watch this in the mind when going to a Buddhist group, the happiness of people receiving us, and then the sadness of separation from people who have treated us well and have been very respectful. This is the way things are. We don't need to make anything out of it, but reflecting on Dhamma helps us to understand what it means to be human. We don't try to feel nothing so that we would be able to be totally blank and indifferent, not daring to feel gladness, sadness or any other emotional state, but being indifferent and insensitive is not the middle way at all. Sensitivity requires us to feel these things, to know what they are. We're not afraid to feel likings, and we're unafraid at feeling pain. Because we were born into this form, we're very sensitive and have emotions. That's just the way it is, the way we feel, and we'll feel until we die. When we're dead, we won't feel anything. Being human is like this. We have these human attractions and aversions, male and female. There it is, human attractions on the human plane, with its sensory consciousness. We feel hot or cold, and well or sick. We enjoy being with people who have common interests. We are angry or annoyed with people who do things we don't like. This is the way it is. But as meditators we reflect on the whole process, seeing and understanding it with wisdom and knowledge, not just trying to to cut our heart out so we don't have to feel anything whatsoever. Trying to avoid forming any attachments and cutting out our hearts means having a very callous idea about Dhamma practice. My mother wasn't an emotional person at all. She never cried. She couldn't cry. She didn't play emotional games with anyone. She was a quite honest and very good person. Because she wasn't an emotional person, people sometimes tended to think she didn't feel things. Before she died, she told me about a scene that showed this. When my father was dying in hospital, he was very emotional. He cried and felt terrible about dying and leaving her. She stood there and didn't cry. He yelled at her, You don't care, do you? She said quietly, I feel just the same as you do, but I can't cry. I'd like to be able to cry for you, but I just can't do it. She wasn't trying to hold back or resist her feelings. It was just her manner, her way. Later on, when she was 87, I said to her, Life is quite sad, isn't it? And she said, Yes, very sad. Not in a complaining or bitter way, but simply as a woman at the end of her life, who had lived quite well and wisely, and realized that there's a pathos and sadness to our life. That's just the way it is. There is always dying. This is the death realm. The sense world and the conditioned realm are a realm of death. But we're always trying to find life there. We always try to hang on to that which is dying and changing. And because of that, there's always this sense of desperation, anxiety and worry. It pursues and haunts us like a spectre walking behind us. We can't quite see it, but we can feel it. Actually, sadness is not depressing. 
we can become depressed by wanting things to be otherwise, thinking, there must be something wrong with me. But this realm is a realm of death, sadness, separation, of having to separate from the loved. We give our hearts and have great feelings of love for each other, and then come the separation that is part of that, and the sadness that comes from separation. We can see this in our own everyday experiences. We can contemplate it in our life, just noticing it in little ways. Children, before they become egos and personalities, are very immediate and spontaneous about their feelings. When a young child's father leaves to go to work, it cries, Don't leave, Daddy! He says, I'll be back in a couple of hours. But a couple of hours doesn't mean anything to a young child. It'll mean something later on, but for a young child, there's only that feeling of separation. Daddy's leaving, and the immediate response is crying, not wanting to separate. I used to notice that it's difficult to say goodbye to someone you are not going to see again. It's always, see you again? When will you come again? There is the idea of meeting again in the mind, because even if there is not a lot of attachment, there is something in us that doesn't want to say goodbye forever. A very sad feeling. I'd lived away from my family for many years, but there was always, see you again, in my mind. I took leave in August during the Vasa in England to attend my father's funeral. My mother said, I'll see you again in March. I'll welcome you back in March. She was very happy that I would be back in March. And when I went back in March, she was there. But then she died. Now I can't say, I'll see you again. I'll never see her again. At the funeral, when they took her coffin to the cemetery, I thought, I'll never see you again. It was a very sad feeling. We can witness this as a, as a characteristic of our humanity. If we take it personally, we might think, well, if we were really mindful, we wouldn't feel anything. We won't feel any sadness. It's just anicca, dukkha, anatta. That's it. Mother is only a perception anyway. Death is the end of something that's not self, so why make a problem out of it? Just dismiss the whole thing as anicca, dukkha, anatta. <coughs> this is an intellectual reaction in our head, but it's not looking penetratingly into the nature of things. It's just applying a nice theory so as simply to dismiss life and not feel anything. We needn't be frightened of or resist feeling, but can contemplate it instead. Because this is the realm we have to put up with and live in for a lifetime. Emotions, feelings and intuition are an inseparable part of that realm. If they're not recognized, witnessed and understood, we become callous and insensitive rationalists. We shut sadness, gladness and other feelings down because we don't want to be bothered with them. We don't want to be bothered with them. We sometimes resist and feel quite frightened of this realm of emotional experience. For men, there's a very strong resistance to it. We can see that constantly seeking a heartfelt emotional state can become an indulgence and a bit sickening and silly. But to understand the nature of sensitivity is not being morbid, foolish or indulgent. It means being really willing to allow our senses to be what they are. To learn from this realm of perception, feeling, emotion and consciousness. In a monastery, we use our situation to observe these things. Something really moving in Thailand is the dana aspect. Thai people are so generous. That really touches me and means a lot to me. I didn't expect anything like that. As I'm a foreigner, why should anyone bother feeding and looking after me? And they don't really ask for very much in return. When I was a junior monk, they didn't expect me to do anything. I just sit there like a, a bump on a log. In fact, they often want you to. In fact, they often want to give you too many things. They really love to support people. Uh, sorry, they really love to support people living the holy life. This gave me the intention to be worthy of that kind of generosity. One way of trying to be worthy is to be as good a monk as possible, to practice and keep the vinaya, and practice the dhamma. We can quite deliberately bring to mind the generosity of this country. It's probably one of the most generous countries we could ever live in. The amount of giving to people living the holy life is amazing, and they hardly expect anything from us. Maybe a smile now and then, or a friendly gesture. This is something that touches the heart. It touches my heart. I wouldn't say, well, generosity is an dukkha anatta, don't get attached to it. 
This is using feeling in a way that's uplifting. When I contemplate the goodness, generosity and compassion of Ajahn Chah, it has an elevating influence on my heart. It helps in our practice and in developing samadhi. The sense of devotion and gratitude is a powerful foundation on which to build up samatha and vipassana. In the community itself, we can learn from each other. We also have to forgive each other. And as a reminder, we perform the ceremony of asking for forgiveness. We learn from each other's ways when we don't understand them. We see each other in fixed ways and feel threatened by certain types of behavior. We have to work through that. So, we need to allow each other that space of forgiveness for not being perfect, totally wise and without flaws all the time. Even monks like myself, who have been bhikkhus much longer than others, still ask for forgiveness for wrongdoing, for anything said or done, intentionally or unintentionally, that may have offended or upset anyone, or caused some kind of unhappiness. This is a way of of clearing and cleaning, of setting things right in ourselves and in our relationships with each other. Fourteen years ago, when I first came here and began to teach, I wasn't very confident as an abbot at all. I'd never been one before, so I was petrified. Western monks are full of ideas and all kinds of different views and opinions. Nuns too, occasionally. And I was supposed to be the abbot, sitting there with all these monks giving me a piece of their minds and throwing opinions at me. There was always conflict, until things became really awful. I remember one morning I became really stern and laid things down saying, I'm the abbot here, you follow me and shut up. I can't operate in this position if you're going to do this to me. One person wants to do it this way, another person wants to do it that way. How am I supposed to function as an abbot? That's the the low volume version. (laughs) Westerners believe firmly in their own views. They follow their opinions strongly. This is the way it's got to be done. It can't be done any other way. We also have our own views about Ajahn Chah. Ajahn Chah said, Ajahn Chah wouldn't do it this way. Ajahn Chah would never do that. I had that thrown at me, always being compared to the top man. It was my first year as an abbot, and everyone was already comparing me with the best. That wasn't fair. So I would react by saying things like, Shut up! and (laughs) Obey! I tried being heavy-handed and domineering. That actually helped in the beginning. I think everyone appreciated it, because it did somewhat clarify the situation. (laughs) They were good monks, so they stopped those habits. But I didn't want to live in that style as a way of life. You shut up. You just follow and obey. We keep learning. Everybody learns. So eventually we find a way of living that is truly beautiful and sensitive and fair. When we rise up to a senior position, we find out what happens. If we're insecure, we'll tend to revert to certain patterns that we've seen before. I tried to copy Ajahn Chah or Ajahn Jan, who was one of Ajahn Chah's most senior disciples. I spent a vasa with Ajahn Jan. He was really quite fierce. If you got up during an all-night sitting, that's, that's getting up from your meditation place, not getting up from your kuti. <laughs> If you got up from your meditation place during an all-night sitting, he would follow you to your kuti. (laughs) All the time he was on your back. That's also a way of keeping control over everything and not letting anyone get away with anything. As soon as you see see a little sign of weakness, one tiny mistake, you jump on it. Stop that, shameless monk. But my character is not like that at all. I began to hate the idea and just tried not to look at things, developing a way of not seeing, squinting my eyes so that there was a haze. I don't like always feeling obliged to tell people off and set them straight. That's a really awful way to live one's life. And that isn't what Ajahn Jan does anyway. He's actually a very kind monk. His behavior wasn't coming from a nasty place and I found him very helpful. But in that same supervisory position, I used to get pretty nasty because I resented the role. I would be quite unpleasant, but this is how we learn. We learn from all this by reflecting on the results. More and more I realized that I was just trying to copy someone else. I could never be like Ajahn Chah. I could never be like anyone else. I had to trust my own quality and character and develop from there. Here at Wat Pananachat, 
There are senior monks, junior monks, novices, eight precept men and women. We can all use our reflective minds more instead of creating problems. Slowly we develop a sense of supporting and helping each other rather than, rather than forming factions or becoming very insensitive and demanding, feeling disappointed because someone doesn't live up to our expectations. We can suffer a lot by wanting the senior monk to be perfect, never do anything wrong and always understand things properly. Sometimes that isn't so, so we feel very disillusioned and disappointed. But I recommend using such situations as Dhamma. Even if we have been treated unfairly, we watch that. Actually, we can learn a lot from being treated unfairly. There's much resentment when we're accused of something that we haven't done, or are treated badly for no reason that we can see. We feel bitterness and anger, but we can try and use these experiences as Dhamma in our lives. When I now hear people gossip, when I hear stories about myself that aren't true, and people blame me for things I haven't done, I can sit back and just watch my mind. If my mind starts saying, it's not fair, I try to use the experience for reflection. So I'm not bitter about the injustices and unfairness that I might experience. I remember the first winter at Amravati. It was a cold winter, very snowy, and we were having a winter retreat. The heating system wasn't very good then. We had a fireplace in the meeting hall, and they put me right in front of this lovely fireplace. Being the head monk, I had the best and warmest position. So that was in the, the morning room, that's the, the fireplace in the... That's why it's called the morning room, because the, the, the Sangha used to gather there in the mornings. So even though we don't, we've still got the name. <laughs> so that was the, that was, the Sangha was a, a gathering in there for the retreat. Of course, everybody else at the back was freezing. <laughs> so being the head monk, I had the best and warmest position. Of course, everybody else at the back was freezing. We did an hour's sitting and then an hour's walking. The bell would go and it would be time to go out and walk. Sitting in front of a warm fire while it's freezing outside, I could see in my mind this strong resistance to going out into the cold. Thoughts would come up such as, what about my health? I'm not getting any younger. The kind of way the mind starts operating to justify being comfortable. So I went out to walk in the snow. It was very bleak and cold. I just started meditating on that. After some time I realized it was all right. There was nothing bad or even uncomfortable about it. We had warm things to wear, so it wasn't painful or dangerous to our health. It's just that warmth is so attractive. There's always this aversion to cold, this wanting to get to the warmest place. I contemplated this. The bare trees, the bleak landscape and the grey sky in the colourless winter light. And I began to quite enjoy being out there in the cold. It was really nice and peaceful. I could see the desire inside of wanting the warmth again, like having a mother to protect me, something nice to hold me, feed me, nurse me and keep me warm. But out in the cold, we had to be aware of what we were doing. There was something strengthening and ennobling about being out there, being mindful and not complaining or running away. In this way, we learn to let go of that tendency to choose. It's like growing up a little bit more. Just through that reflection, I felt a sense of growing confidence. What are the worst things that could happen to a human being? Starving, being ostracized and thrown out into the cold, humiliated and misunderstood by the community, accused of something one hasn't done, being old and sick with wild animals howling in the distance, and no hope of anyone ever coming to the rescue. Total deprivation of anything comfortable, reassuring or nurturing, and even being tortured and persecuted. I realized that if all that happens in life, one can cope with it, that even the worst is somehow all right. When I thought about it more, I realized how much of life we live on the level of cowardice and laziness. We're afraid to take any risks because we might suffer just a bit, or something might go wrong and we might be a little uncomfortable. Or we might lose something that we really think we must have. How easily we compromise just for mediocrity and comfort and a false sense of security. We don't really bring attentiveness to our ordinary life. It's very unlikely I would be tortured or thrown out of the Sangha 
I don't expect that to happen. But at the same time, I don't really care if it does. I don't mind. I can see now how to work with those kinds of situations, how to use the misfortunes of life with wisdom. They're just the way life flows. This gives us a sense of courage. Anything I've said during this time is for reflection. It's important for us to understand Dhamma for ourselves. I'm not trying to tell anyone how they should practice or what they should do. It's for us to consider how to cultivate our own reflective mind. Because in this life, the effort has to come from ourselves. In the holy life, we have to develop that effort from the heart. There's no way that anybody else can make us enlightened. I can push and intimidate everyone by using fear and fierceness, keeping everyone awake through making them frightened, but that just tends to condition us to be frightened creatures who are obedient and do all the right things because we are afraid of being punished and beaten up if we don't. But this life as a monk or as a nun is a matter of rising up, growing up, and developing effort from there. We need to cultivate samavayama, right effort, samasati, right mindfulness, and samasamadhi, right concentration. They are a part of the Noble Eightfold Path. I encourage everyone to do that and to use the situation here for practice. It's a good situation, something to treasure, to respect, and to use properly. As usual, many jewels in there. uh, Lumpur's uh, personal experience. well, firstly, talking about his uh, his mother, um, what uh, what happened uh, at that time when he said that uh, he was going to go back and see her in March. He did go back and visit her, so it was about six months after his father had passed away, and um, he visited her in Southern California and his uh, sister and brother-in-law, and um, spent uh, you know, a week or so, ten days with her, and then uh, she saw him off at the airport, said goodbye. And then um, that evening when they, she went home, then she had a little bit of a temperature and uh, his sister Virginia insisted on taking his taking uh, his mother to the hospital. She was, oh, don't be so silly. I'm, I'm only, it's only a, a, a little temperature, nothing wrong with me. But she took her into the hospital. She stayed there overnight. She woke up at about um, six in the morning. The nurse brought her a cup of tea. She apparently took a sip from her tea, put it down, coughed and died. Just like that. So uh, um, Lumpur was on his way to uh, to San Francisco. He was about to go and lead a ten day retreat, and so we got the message here from his sister Virginia that his mother had just died. So we had to call him uh, uh, in San Francisco and pass on the message that his mother, had literally just you know, twenty four hours before, had uh, had died, and. Um, uh, it, was, it was very poignant. I mean, he's, he can sound kind of cold-hearted. Or, I mean, in a way, he's sort of joking about saying, you know, your mother is just an Ichiduka Anatta. <laughs> and he's, he's kind of joking about it in, in that way. But also, I think the most important thing in that is to say that uh, how he points out that we shouldn't feel um, afraid of the emotions that we experience and that um, you know, sadness is not depressing and uh, and so forth. And what... Uh, uh, I wasn't there. I was I was here at Amravati at that time, but the the person he was staying with in San Francisco, Mark Lieberman, said that he was it was at his place when Ajahn Sumedha got the call, and, and the news that his mother had died, and he had to go and lead this ten day retreat. And so he he said it was very difficult driving up from San Francisco to Santa Rosa. It's about an hour and a half drive, and Ajahn Sumedha just wanted to hold my hand the whole way. It was a he says, it's difficult changing gears. <laughs> but then if it's Ajahn Sumedho who wants to hold your hand, then you really, you can't say no. And he said, he, he sat there next to him, with, just holding his hand and with tears pouring down his face the whole, the whole car ride. And, uh, but, uh, you know, he, he was, he was sad, but he was not upset. So, uh, sometimes we, we feel like, well, if you're, if you're crying, you must be upset. <laughs> But it's not necessarily the case. You, there can be that that flow of emotion in a very strong and uh, intense way, but still that quality of of, of peacefulness or, or sense of of rightness. That, and there's that um, nothing being wrong with that. There's just the flavour of sadness at the separation from the, from the loved. So there's a sadness there, or there's that kind of grief, but no no anguish. 
So that's a, a very important thing that uh, you know that came from that experience. And then halfway through the retreat, he had to leave the retreat, go to his mother's funeral, and then come back again. <laughs> during a ten, during the middle of a ten day retreat, he flew back down to San Diego, was at his mother's funeral, and then returned to finish leading the retreat. And James Barras uh, was another um, Dharma teacher in the Bay Area, filled in for him while so looked after running the retreat while he was away. So it was also very challenging for James <laughs> to, to be stepping into that role. And then, of course, the whole retreat was very much con- taken up with that experience he had of, of his mother passing away. Then uh, talking about his um, leadership style, the early days of Wat Chat, he's not exaggerating here, because uh, he he was a kind of liberal... Um, a sort of starry-eyed liberal um, lefty in the, in the, in Berkeley University in the sixties, but of course he was also in the U.S. Navy, so his he he uh, reverted to the U.S. Navy leadership style uh, when he tried to run the monastery, which was um, <clears throat> I expect all of you to fall in line and <laughs> and obey me, and uh, he uh, and he, yeah he talks about it quite candidly here how. Yeah, it made things simple for a while. <laughs> Everyone knew you're going to get your head ripped off if you don't obey the Ajahn. But also he points out how that's a pretty miserable way to, to try and you know, lead a community and that it's uh, you know, depressing and, and also pretty tense. But it also it was a good learning experience for him and he, he, he's often talked about how in, during that time he, went, he sort of dragged himself over to Wat Bapong and said, oh, Lumpur, I, you know, I think this, this idea of a monastery with the Westerners is a bad idea. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm, I'm really fed up. I can't do this. Um, this is hopeless. And, and Ajahn Chah just laughed at him. And thought, <laughs> ah, you know, Sameda, you thought that being an abbot was just having a big cushion and getting the first, you know, getting the, getting the hot coffee out of the pot, you know. But... Uh, <laughs> You thought that's all it was to be an abbot. And he, Ajahn Chah understood that he, where he was at completely because, of course, he'd been there 15 years before you know, when, when he started Wat Bapong, uh, or maybe 20 years before. 1954 was when Wat Bapong started. And Wat Pananachat began in 74, so it's 20 years later. But Ajahn Chah had been through exactly the same kind of thing and had had the same sort of shut up, obey, or you know, get out of here. And then saying, well, yeah, you can do that, but then it doesn't really bring a very liberating result. And uh, one very, very, he doesn't mention it here, but one very helpful teaching um, that Ajahn Chah gave him, he said, you know, it's like if you got all of the monks to, to lie down on the floor and then you line them up so that all of their feet are level and then you notice all their heads are in a wiggly line so that, oh, that's not good. No, we need to, we, I, need to, I need to work on that. So you go around the heads and you get all the heads lined up and then all the feet are out of line. <laughs> So no matter how much you move them back and forth, they're always they're always out of whack with each other. They, they, they never they, you never get them to line up properly. That's the way people are. You know, some go slow, some go fast. Some are some are sharp, some are blunt. You know, some are heavy, some are light. And you you can't just expect them all to fit your your model. There was also a, a famous um, photoshopped uh, group uh, picture of the Sangra Wat Pananachat in the. Uh, after this time, when Ajahn Jayasara was the abbot, after Ajahn Pasano had come to uh, to live in America, Ajahn Jayasara took over as the head monk at Wat Pananachat, and um, they had a, a like a, after the rains retreat, they had this group photograph of you know twenty five, thirty of them also standing there, and one of the monks was a was a bit of a Photoshop artist, and he pasted in Ajahn Jayasara's face on all of the monks. <laughs> So everybody in the group photo was had Ajahn Jayasaro's head, so, so, and they put on the caption, you know, the perfect monastery. <laughs> everybody thinks like me, so you know, there's no no cause for for dispute. So of course, I've benefited a lot from uh, all the my my esteemed mentors making all these mistakes, and so coming into this, I've had a, a lot of very good advice. Myself, so I appreciate all of the difficulties that uh, that you know, Lumpur Sumato has had. It's also kind of interesting when, when you're a novice, you know exactly how the monastery should be run. You got it really totally clear. As Nana Garika, as a novice, it's absolutely it's, it's no question about how it all should all be set up. It's like it's dead obvious. 
Uh, it should be like this, and you should be like that. And you have, when I'm running, the, when I'm the abbot of monastery, I will. I'll never allow X, and I'm always going to have Y. And it's, and then, <clears throat> so you're 100% certain when you're an anagarika or you're a novice. Right? And then when you become a junior monk, you're like 80% certain. You know, how you how you're going to do it, and how it's going to be, how you're never going to do this, and you're always going to do that. And I'm really going to make the monks do this because that's what I admire. So when you're a majima monk, about five years, then you're kind of fifty percent sure. When you're a terra, you're like twenty percent sure. By the time you actually get to be in the role of a of the of an abbot, um, nothing is anything like what you imagined. <laughs> the way that you thought it was going to be when you were a novice is a totally different story. So be be informed, guys. Yeah. <laughs> if you if you understand what I mean, it's like a that <clears throat> you uh, you have these clear pictures of how the world's going to be, and you forget that when when I'm the abbot of the monastery, all those those other those other people, the lay people, the the, the monks and nuns that are there, they actually don't have any personalities. They're just these blobs. <laughs> <laughs> they just sort of sit there in your imaginary world and they just say, yes, Ajahn. <laughs> How high should I jump, Ajahn? Where would you like me to land? You know, what else can I do for you, Ajahn? How can I help? You know, please, please don't let me be any bother to you. Yeah. What else can I do for you? That's all they ever say. <laughs> if they say anything at all, you know. And so you, you, know, the, the, you realize as time goes on, you, as uh, you get more and more in the role of responsibility or leadership, you become the stores monk or the work monk or you look, look after the office or something. And, and then you, you keep meeting uh, the fact that, oh, well, I've got to deal with this person. Well, she's like this and well, he's like that. And now how am I going to work with that? And you realize these blobs have got opinions, <laughs> feelings. <laughs> they have a story. They actually have a family they come from. They have a nationality. They have an age and a gender. Oh, right, right. And none of that's there when you're, the, when you're a novice and you've got everything figured out. Like, when well, I have my perfect monastery, it will be. So, so let's see. Um, so he talked a little bit about forgiveness, which is, um, in a way, that's, it's related to that... Um, <clears throat> making space for, for other people, even if we have been treated unfairly, we watch that. Actually, we can learn a lot from being treated unfairly. And um, there's much resentment that when we're accused of something we haven't done or are treated badly for no reason that we can see. So this is a very important area of practice. And, and uh, it's interesting, because I, I tend to talk about this quite a lot, that it's a, a seriously advanced practice is learning how to be misunderstood and misrepresented. Pause. To let to let yourself be misunderstood, misrepresented, and to not jump in and try and fix it, as uh, it says in the uh, in I think in the the teachings of Confucius, uh, those who justify themselves do not convince. So uh, that's a, a very serious and very helpful practice to let yourself be misunderstood, because part of us I, I'm a kind of compulsive pleaser. I always want to please people, make everything all right, sort of jump in and fix and explain, and and don't want anything to be out of out of order. I'm always, as you might notice, I'm very verbal, <laughs> and so I use my verbal capacities to try and make everything all right all the time, and explain, uh, and uh, to restrain that, and just to let yourself be misunderstood, not to try and justify everything or to to make everything all right. It takes a lot of effort. But as Longbore points out here, you know, you it can actually be quite peaceful just to let yourself be misunderstood and people misread you, misrepresent you, say horrible things about you. Fine. <laughs> and just to, to not be invested in, in having a trying to get everyone to think positively about you. Because just like in that that um that saying, those who justify themselves do not convince, the very energy that's there behind trying to trying to justify self self-justify, to explain yourself. That's a kind of anxious, agitated, self-bound energy that you're bringing to it. And whereas that, that, um, that other, where you're not, just shut, you're not just shutting yourself off, like, well, I don't care what they think, I'm fine. You know, they can think what they like. <laughs> That's still a kind of an attachment. But 
If it's more of a spacious world, people are entitled to their own opinions. If they want to like me, they can like me. If they want to be indifferent, they can be indifferent. If they want to criticize me, that, that's fine. That's their business. Then that's quite a spacious way. Because even you find that even when you want people to like you, <laughs> that uh, you're, you're creating a kind of hunger and agitation within yourself. And that uh, it's not a, even if you can get those sort of gestures of affirmation, it's, it's not very peaceful and it's not, it's not liberating. It might be pleasing in some small way, but it's not really liberating. There's a, a very beautiful story about Hakulin Zenji. Um, Hakulin was uh, just starting off on his career as an abbot in a very poor provincial temple in, in Japan. And he was starting to garner students and um, suddenly um, a, a fisherman came to him and said, my daughter is pregnant and she, she, she says, you're the father. And he said, oh, is that so? And so when the baby was born, he didn't deny it. He didn't um, put up a fuss. He didn't justify himself. And so when the baby was born, the uh, parents brought the child to him. And he, his reputation was ruined. Students went away. Um, he, he lost a, a great deal of support. But he raised the child. And then eventually, after 11 years, the woman confessed that no, Hakuin Zenji wasn't the father. And so the parents came and said, the child's not yours, took the child, and he said, oh, is that so? It, he never put up a fuss, mm -hmm. he never complained. Uh, it's, it's just, and for 300 years you had a great story. Yeah. That's a very, very beautiful yeah. story of this, of this Yeah. Yeah, it's it's really interesting. Um, so uh, when when I lived here at, at Amravati in the uh, late eighty uh, eight, in the eighty five to ninety five, um, and you know, through the other times, I'd always been the kind of person for you know, every job. I was always volunteering, and any work uh, with scheduled work, I'd always arrive first, and then I'd finish up after everybody else. And I was always. Uh, Going into the kitchen and cleaning up the sinks and cleaning the cleaning the outside of the washing up tubs and cleaning the you know went into the toilet and it was not clean I cleaned that up and I was always sort of working extra hard at everything and was kind of identified with being this this guy who always says yes I can help and uh, I'm this uh, you know endlessly energetic helpful bloke that was my kind of self perception and the way I functioned. So then when I went to uh, the States and was uh, opening up this, this monastery um, in California, I, I realized, and you had all these stories and my experience of Ajahn Chah always being there, sort of helping with the work teams and involved in the community activities. And I began to realize that uh, Abhayagiri, as we were building this whole monastery and, and constructing uh, huts in the woods and laying pipelines, and I saw, I can't join in with all the work with all the you know the, the the group work and look after the office and do all the monastery administration and be a, tra a traveling dharma teacher i can't do it <laughs> there's just not enough hours in the day and so um i decided that i and also because i could see i was kind of identified with being with a helpful monk who always volunteers for everything um I thought, okay, well, I'll just not join in with a lot of the work. If I've really got some space, I'll join in and help out with, you know, shoveling dirt in the trenches or carrying lumber through the forest to to build bridges or steps or building kutis. But if I haven't really got space, I'll, I'll just let others do it. Um, and so then, uh, so I, that's the, the way I operated because I could see there were certain things I could do and I was the only one who could really look after it, like with the administration and communications and such like so I just did that, and then it was it was very very funny because a few years later, it's, uh, during that time, uh, this uh, one uh, particular person came and joined our community, became an anagarika and a novice, and became a monk. And um, I think in t 2001 we had uh, so sort of Ajahn Chah, uh, we had a sort of a weekend of teachings about the, you know the life and teachings of Ajahn Chah, and had many um, of uh, sort of old. Uh, Sangha members, people who'd been monks with Ajahn Chah, um, uh, and uh, over the years, and ex-monks and nuns got gathered together, 
for uh, this weekend. And so this this monk, Tanjodi uh, Palo, he was picking the brains of some of the the ex monks and visitors about what it was like in the old days. And he got talking with with the ex Ajahn Kidisaro uh, and uh, about uh, about me some, for some reason or other. <laughs> and so, and Jody Palo, he confessed later, had been carrying around these kind of because he was often the work monk. Ajahn Amra, he's so lazy. He just wants to be in the office the whole time. He doesn't really when there's any kind of serious work. He's always just back. You know, he's always work shy. You know, he does he doesn't want to get his hands dirty and. <laughs> And then he said that he had this conversation with Kirisara and said, Oh, Ajahn Amra, he's incredible. You know, every time there was any work going on, he was always, you know, first one to volunteer. He was always working twice as hard as anybody else. The grungiest jobs, he was up. There was this water tank at Amravati. He was in there three days, grinding all the rust off the inside of this huge tank, totally covered with, with this, this dust, and then, and then filling all the gaps with, with car body filler and getting his, his brains fried with all the fumes and never complained. It was incredible. It was amazing. And, uh, yeah, and so Jerry Parthing, oh, God. <laughs> and he was hearing all these kind of negative critical thoughts he'd been having about me as a sort of workshy slob. He never wanted to get his hands dirty. And he had this sort of account from Kirisara that, that uh, how, how I was able to operate if you know, the conditions were... were um, uh, was suitable, and so Jody Parlow kind of came. I think I don't know if he had the, the flowers, candles, flowers, and incense. <laughs> but he certainly sort of came, at least figuratively, figuratively on his knees, and said, "Ajahn, I've got a confession to make." <laughs> Even carrying around these sort of negative feelings, but then the result of ne- of me not complaining, because I also I was picking that up from him uh, over time. It was a sort of look you get. Like, <laughs> You know, it was people sort of staggering in from the forest, all kind of covered in sweat and poison oak rashes, and, and the sort of look that you get. You had a hard day in the office, I John. You know. <laughs> yeah. Gosh, you must be tired. <laughs> yeah, and uh, so I, I was not insensitive to that vibe, but because I, uh, but because I had never said anything, and I hadn't jumped in to explain myself, and I sort of was using this practice of being misunderstood. It meant that Tanjali Palo was sort of doubly impressed <laughs> and, and more devoted and and, and uh, sweet and, and kind of a, and had a, a, you know, an even deeper impact that I, I was never kind of trying to explain or justify myself. So let's see, maybe the last thing there was. Um, let's see. Oh yes, about the. Um, and then uh, Lumpur talking about this uh, starving, being ostracized and thrown out in the cold, humiliated, misunderstood. This also this re- relates to, and uh, I think I mentioned this a couple of weeks ago, how <coughs> when they were in Hampstead in London, then uh, Lumpur had this nimitta, this sort of vision in his meditation of exactly that kind of situation, like being naked out in the freezing uh, sort of Arctic twilight, everything that he didn't like. Cold, alone, um, howling wolves on the wind, and abandoned, you know, forlorn. But it was extraordinarily peaceful. So all the the the, the um, sensory impingement in the vision was exactly what he didn't like. But yet there was this incredible peacefulness. And what he understood from that was that it was a uh, it was talking about. The um, the fact that the peace of mind is really independent of external conditions, and and at that time he'd been doing a lot of complaining, like oh I want to go back to Thailand, I hate it here in London, it's so cold and grey and wet and nasty, and I want to be back in the nice warm sunny forest in Thailand with my kuti and not with all these dreadful English people bothering me about meditation and so on. And uh, he saw that that was um, he was he was. Uh, Relating to things in a really unskillful way, that he was his mind was locked onto kaya viveka or physical seclusion, and that instead uh, he needed to to uh, not be seeking for for contentment or peace just from external conditions, but rather looking at the chitta viveka, looking to develop that internal seclusion. And so that was that was such a strong insight. That was why he chose the name Chittaviveka for Chithurst Monastery when they did get given the forest and they were able to move out of London. 
then uh, that was her name. I mean, the, the fact the village was called Chithurst was one thing, but you know, he had the, the word Chittaviveka was very much in his mind. That's the word for internal seclusion, because he saw that that's how you know that you you develop this uh, inner seclusion, this inner serenity. Then you you can be a um, uh, you can be at peace with with whatever the external circumstances happen to be. So, any questions, reflections, Mac? Well, it's, yeah, it's good to be able to see that, that uh, to be able to you know, identify that. Yeah, yeah, how and it can be both um, depressing and also liberating. Like, look at that! My my mind is so caught up that. Uh, it becomes so obvious. This is what we, you're just it's because these people are not there, and you're so attached to them. It's not because they're dead. Well, the yeah, feeling of of lo- that you've lost something. Yeah. That was the other thing. I remember how this conversation about being misunderstood, but also you could be misrepresented the other way. You could be praised and find it, and you know, some your praises heavens or whatever, and you find it really difficult just to accept it. <laughs> <laughs> Yes. Exactly. Yeah. It, it can be more difficult to receive praise than criticism, yeah. and to not. Is that a Western thinking, or that's Um. I think it's yeah. I think it's universal, really. Um, it, <laughs> there's, there's a kind of national compulsion to, to self-denigrate. There was some, and because uh, it's say in uh, West Coast America, it's like it's kind of the opposite. <laughs> Hi, aren't you pleased to meet me? You know? <laughs> I've made your day, right? <laughs> How lucky you are. <laughs> and not be ironic either. <laughs> That's the really. Whereas a Brit would say that, you know, that, that we're so totally self-effacing. It it is hard though. Also, being uh, receiving, lo- being loved. It's also very. I think we were talking about that the other day. That for the English, it's going to be very difficult. You can be loved by your dog and your cat if the cat deigns to to sort of notice your presence when it's usually when it's food time. But uh, but uh, we, we're happy to be loved by our pets. But the English find it very very difficult to be loved by another person and to have that kind of vulnerability. And um, just to to let people in, I think it's we're a, we're a crowded little island, <laughs> and so we we have all sorts of signals to fend people off. I mean, like going being in the in the tube in London, it's kind it's quite. I mean, because a lot of people are listening to music or things on their their headphones nowadays, but still, it's, it's like eye contact. <laughs> yeah, this, you just when the, the particularly if the train stops between stations, is this. Complete silence. <laughs> Everyone's just sitting. 
this, you, you, you close yourself in. I think it's a, it's a kind of cultural reflex to self-protection. And that uh, that's, and also because, particularly for the Southern, southern English, that sense of emotional uh, non-expressiveness. That it, you know, it's a, you, you don't, you don't display your emotions, particularly as a bloke. You know. I've often told the story of how I was leading a, a 10-day retreat here back in the, that time and there's this um it was a particularly large proportion of, of men on the retreat so um uh, there was this very sort of blokish atmosphere was, the shrine room felt like sort of wet cement this kind of sort of sullen blokish uh, aramana that filled the place and um and there was this uh, you know so anyway it was there was a, a couple of people in the front row who were sitting there like, with eyes bright and sort of, and uh, you know, very, very open. So I tended to, <laughs> I could see myself fixating on these sort of bright-eyed, interested people. You know, a couple of people in the front row, but the rest of the of the hall was a sort of, <laughs> of seemingly sullen, blokish kind of uh, heavy, wet cement kind of um, mode. And then there's one guy. Uh, so it was about halfway through the retreat, and it was. Um, Having an interview, and, and there was in those days the, the retreats were slightly smaller in number, so you'd have one on one retreat, one on one interviews. And so it was about fourth or fifth day, and so I said, So, uh, so how's it going, Steve? And 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 he uh, and he looked particularly kind of morose and glum the whole time, and sort of sitting, <laughs> sitting there with a hang dog look on his face. And he says, Even as he's talking to me, he says, well, Bansay, I think this is the most wonderful week of my life. <laughs> I've never, I've never felt so happy. Yeah. My, like my, my heart is like kind of just overflowing with joy all day long. It's kind of amazing, actually. And even as he's saying it, there's just like no affect. You know, it's difficult not to crack up because, and he was quite sincere. He's, just, you know, he's like, oh, it's just, just overwhelmingly joyful. You know, it's incredible. You know, I just sort of. Have this sort of love for all beings, <laughs> and there's nothing showed. There's like nothing in the expression, and he was having this sort of blissful, ecstatic experiences, and there was this, just this flat, you know, non-expressiveness. So going to California um, in the early '90s, where everything <laughs> is on display from you know, the first five minutes that you meet somebody, they've got the whole life story and and every nuance of. Of emotion is just hi. Here's what's happening for me, and so yeah, I, I've, I've always thought of myself as a kind of liberal um, extrovert kind of English person, but I could see my sort of <laughs> oh dear, you know, where's a newspaper that I can hide behind? You know? <laughs> really, it was uh, my my utter. Sort of home county's Englishness it started to manifest, but it was good. I actually enjoyed being around that because it was so. It was such a contrast to the the English way, and that uh, obviously you got sometimes you got what they call too much information. <laughs> but it was it was that's that a contrasting way of being whereby people are very. Um, Unabashed about letting, letting you know what they're what they're feeling, and it was it's great because sometimes you know you'd be you'd be saying something and they'd say I don't agree with you, Ajahn, I think that's rubbish, and you go, <laughs> oh, <laughs> because a you know a Brit would never say that, you know they they just you know they, maybe they sort of glance at the the floor or they sort of <laughs> lips sort of tighten a fraction, but they never say. But that's rubbish, Ajahn. You know, I don't agree with you. Uh, and so it was quite refreshing to be sort of sideswiped like, in that way. Like, oh, they're actually telling me what they're thinking. That's interesting. <laughs> and I just had never uh, encountered that. But I wouldn't say, you know, it's, it's, it's not something that's particularly um, liberating in and of itself. But it's, it's important just to get to know your own cultural style. And if you see, like I saw for myself, there was one time, actually at the end of the winter retreat, in that, that, uh, that time, um, myself and one of the nuns had uh, been sort of looking after the lay support group for the, the whole three months. 
And um, so there have been a few ups and downs, you know, with the, with the group, and um, but uh, things have gone, uh, you know, we sort of weathered the storms, and then, and at the end of the retreat, then we just we were sitting there in the uh, in the morning room, and uh, she just uh, expressed a sense of appreciation and uh, gratitude for um, having had the opportunity to work together, and to um, and she appreciated what I brought to the um, task of looking after the group. And and it I, I was just so kind of straightforward and un, unloaded. I just couldn't, I just couldn't deal with it. It was like, oh, and I just sort of brushed it off with some kind of witty remark or just kind of poo-pooed that. And, but then I, and then, uh, yeah, some sort of dismissive, um, evasive comment. <laughs> and, uh, but it really stuck with me. Uh, because uh, after that encounter, I thought that's really strange. You know, she was just expressing a very straightforward, you know, un, un, uh, you know unambiguous gratitude and appreciation, love, and I couldn't, I couldn't accept it. I couldn't, uh, I couldn't allow, allow it in. I mean, it was nothing unskillful. It was just, you know, a. Uh, it was just I saw that was there was this cultural reflex of like, oh no, don't be so straight, <laughs> don't be so straightforward. I, I don't know, I don't know where to put that. And uh, so I really reflected on that. Oh, that's really strange. What what was it that was just pulling away from that? I just couldn't just say thank you. And it was great to work with you too. That I had to just sort of evade that, or just couldn't receive something as simple and as unguarded in that. As that, and uh, so eventually I, I went back to her and I said, "Sorry about that." <laughs> and uh, uh, and then we we talked about it, but it was uh, it was it was really uh, striking in that moment. I had never really seen that that kind of um, the difficulty difficulty of being loved. Uh, I hadn't seen that that bef- so clearly before, and uh, also just recognizing. You know how we don't have to be a victim of our own habits or sort of cultural style, but we can we can recognize that. Or like like Max saying about, oh, I only care about people dying because I've lost them. <laughs> I don't actually care what's happened to them. <laughs> I only care about it from me. <gasps> Gasp! You know, look at that. And so then that being able to see those the way that we react to those different. Emotional dynamics. Yeah, then one, the more you understand your your own reaction. Yeah, and then you you can you also find yourself more at ease with that whole mode of of expression and and relating to others. You find yourself more sort of um, adaptable. How would you describe the tie uh, emotional, cultural sort of persona? Um, <laughs> well, there are a lot more. There are a lot more straight. Uh, the Thai people uh, are a lot more straightforward, you know, than than say the the, the British. So that they, you, you know, if someone, you, it's usually very clear what somebody is feeling. Um, if people are upset with you, or if people you know are angry, they ver- they're very non-confrontational. So there's ways that you signal you're upset by going around. So like if if I was upset with you, I'd talk to Mike and say, you know, I'm feeling really uncomfortable about Mac, um, and uh, you know because we had this conversation and and then he said this and it really had this bad effect on me so then that means you go tell him <laughs> and then because i i you know, i can't confront you so they have all kinds of, of sort of socially acceptable ways of communicating your your conflict but not in a in a uh, you might think of as devious or well it's, it's a, it might be, but it's a, it's a roundabout way because that they are. You never want to to shame somebody or co- confrontation, because when 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 you do get a, a confrontation, then it's really explosive. 
Yeah, I've seen that where Westerners really, you know, the time will be pushing up with this quickly. They think, you know, this is really insult, you know, it's appalling behaviour. If they do lose it, then. They really lose it, yeah. yeah. There's, you know, there's shrapnel everywhere. <laughs> yeah, ex- exactly. Well, you were married to a Thai person. Yeah. Well. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Sort of, kind of. Yeah. So that, 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 I mean, Ajahn Chah used to find it... <laughs> but Ajahn Chah used to quite like that, um, that Westerners could be much more straightforward. He thought it was, he thought it was great. When, when a, a monk would just come to him and say, Ajahn, I'm fed up with Wapapong. Can I get a Tamsung pet? And he, he'd just say, are you sure? You know? <laughs> because he said, and he'd say, like, there's no, no Thai monk would ever, ever, ever you know, put it in that way. They'd say, well, my, my, I think my practice would probably would, you know, would improve if I was, had a different environment. I'd really like to go and practice with Ajahn Song. Or, yeah, Ajahn Witten's a very inspiring monk, don't you think, Kampo? And then sort of try and work it around. To, Why didn't you get a Thompson pet? Oh, really? Yeah, that's a good idea. Yeah. So he, he found it kind of refreshing that Westerners could be so totally yeah, uh, sort of straightforward. Usually the Americans. <laughs> but uh, it's, it, those kind of things, it's helpful to get our, a perspective on your own uh, cultural mores. Because like... Like for Thai people, it's it, for for them making remarks about your physical appearance is to, is is not insulting. Uh, so that you know they'd say, "Well, your nose is very big," or 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 they'd say, "Well, you know, you're you're shorter than all the other guys, aren't you?" Very straightforward. Or like the uh, um, yesterday, the the young woman who came with the Tuesday group, her name is Owen, fat. That's her name, Owen. That's that's her, her name is is like fatty. You know, she's a big. I mean, the, the you know, if she was a Westerner. People would say, "Don't you mention the fact she's a big, she's a big woman." You know, don't don't say anything. But the, that's her name is Owen Fat. So you know, it's like that kind of straightforwardness. But it's where you know, for a, a Westerner, it's like, don't say anything because, of, or they or when. Um, the uh, or, you know if there were monks at Wat Nanachat like uh, uh, one who one monk who ordained with Ajahn Sujito was an African American, and he was a, a <clears throat> he was at Wat Nanachat for a while, and the villagers would come up and go, "Wow, I never saw anybody as black as you. You're really black, aren't you? <laughs> yeah. What's that like?" And, and he'd been you know, hanging out with the Black Panthers in Detroit, you know. So he was kind of very, very race conscious. But they, he, that it was, to, it was nothing to them. It was just, it was an innocence. yeah, absolute innocence. And they, and they, so they're not trying to be insulting or, or fineful because to them it's not this making remarks about your physical appearance. It's not loaded in any kind of emotional way, whereas it would be for a Westerner, like you know, you're really short or you're fat or you're got, you got a big nose or. Whatever it's just you have got a big nose, <laughs> and so it's a um, that is it's also very informative being around that a whole different way of relating to your own body or things that you see the different cultural mores. So that yeah, oh, so where where you you get a perspective on your own conditioning. Sex. The Buddhist attitude to that is so different from Christian Judeo. Very straightforward, yeah. Very matter of fact, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the uh, I mean, well, so, yeah, numerous instances, <laughs> comments that that sort of you find of quite. Um, you seem seemingly refined or, or kind of restrained people, just making totally casual remarks about sex, and, yeah. and uh, it's you know, very straightforward. It's kind of you know, nothing, nothing special. And someone was just telling me the other day how they overheard a conversation between um, a, a, a Thai man and a Thai woman here, and <coughs> and uh, 
the, the fellow makes a remark, oh, I, I think we were probably a husband and wife in a past life. And she said, if you want to sleep with me, just say so. But you don't need to, you don't need to, you don't need to beat around the bush like this. <laughs> and, I mean, can you imagine like, having a... Yeah, in the church, having a conversation with the sort of person next to you in the pew, like <laughs> this, this, this is a completely different. Uh, Only California, <laughs> yeah, probably, probably. Yeah. <laughs> hmm? London, yeah, make Camden, yeah. <laughs> okay. Andamayang dhammagatha sadhukaranda dhamma se sadhukaranda